Happy 4th of July! It's time to celebrate America. Hi, I'm Kerrigan Santos. As you prepare the barbecue and spend some quality time with the family, tune in together to the special episode of Celebrate America, recorded live at First Assembly Memphis, featuring special guest David Barton. Let's join David Barton and reflect on the great people who contributed to making this nation great. I want to start with the Bible verse. It's a relatively simple Bible verse. That Bible verse is Proverbs 10, 22, and it says, the blessing of the Lord, it makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Very simply, God's blessing is something that enriches our life. And as it turns out, some of the greatest blessings we have are ones we don't really notice. I learned this from a founding father named Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration on the 4th of July, he's one of those 56. He also, according to John Adams, out of the 250 founding fathers, he's one of the three most notable. John Adams said it's George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. Now, he started the first abolition society in America. He started the first Bible society in America. He started the Sunday school movement in America. He is the greatest physician in American history, known as the father of American medicine. He started five universities, and I just keep going. The guy is unbelievable. We own a lot of his original writings. And he has, as a good Christian, he keeps a lot of records. And as a good Christian, he was going through and thanking God for the blessings he enjoyed. And he was trying to be grateful and thankful for that. And as he was listening to the blessings, I was reading them saying, yeah, that makes sense. And he came to one where he said, I thank God for all the times I have not fallen downstairs. Run that by me again. I just ran up the stairs and nobody noticed that because I didn't fall. If I'd fallen, you would have noticed that I ran up stairs, but nobody would pay attention to it. Some of the greatest blessings we have are the things we don't notice, like our health, unless something happens, or our job, unless something happens, or our family, unless something happens. And I think that of all people in the world, we Americans have more blessings that we take for granted than any other people out there. Who are the leaders responsible for giving us a nation that's so different from everything else? And maybe we would go back to those who wrote the Constitution, those who did the Declaration of Independence, they gave us our value system. We'd go back to people like George Washington. We'd go back to people like John Hancock. We'd go to John Adams. All these are significant leaders who had a great impact on America becoming who she is. And it's interesting that John Adams, in 1818, 42 years after he signed the Declaration of Independence, a young man named Hezekiah Niles contacted him. He was a young generation. He had not gone through the American War for Independence. He didn't know anything about it except what he'd been told. He wasn't there for it, but he knew old man Adams had been there. And so he contacted Adam and said, look, I'm doing a book on the history of the United States. I wasn't there. You were. You were intimately involved in it. So I want to ask you some questions. He asked John Adams, he said, you know, what you guys did, what you've given us is so amazing. Where did you get your ideas? Which is a great question because no other nation came up with that set of ideas. And Adam said, well, if you don't know where we got the ideas, he said, right up top, I'd say the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And then I'd say the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew, and don't forget the Reverend Charles Johnson. He, he goes through and lists preachers as the source of their ideas. Now, that's not what we expect to hear today. This is not the history we're taught. We don't know preachers, whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world is Richard Allen, or who's Absalom Jones, or who's John Moran, or who's Lemuel Haynes, or who's Harry Hoosier? We don't know these names. And by the way, let me just tell you Harry Hoosier for a moment. Harry Hoosier was in the Great Awakenings. The Great Awakenings back in the beginning, the 1700s, 1800s, those Great Awakenings had some great preachers in them. That's where George Whitfield became famous. That's where John and Charles Wesley became famous. These were guys who had massive crowds. They were draw tens of thousands of people to an open cow pasture. And yet Asbury said, well, Harry draws larger crowds than I do. Really? Harry's got big crowds? Never heard of him before. Benjamin Russ said, I go to Harry's meetings. He said, Harry is the greatest orator I have ever heard. 
Benjamin, you're running around with Patrick Henry and all the famous guys. Yeah, but nobody is better than Harry Hoosier. Now, we hear a little about Hoosier today, but Hoosier's ministry was largely to what we would call kind of the working class people, the blue collar guys. And Harry's ministry is really along the East Coast. He was over in Philadelphia, up in Jersey and Delaware. Other guys that hadn't been converted would look at Harry's guys and say, these guys act really different. What's up with them? And the answer was, they're a bunch of those Hoosiers. Now, this was the Indiana Territory at the time. Of course, that's the Hoosier State. I wonder how many people who live in Indiana know they were named after a black evangelist. Probably very few. And you would think that a guy who had a state named after him might show up in somebody's history book. We don't know a thing about Harry Hoosier today. So we, we don't cover this part of our history. So when you look back in that point in time, Bishop Charles Galloway, who's a church historian, looked back over that period of time, and this is the way he described that, that era of American history. He said, mighty men they were, men of iron nerve and strong hand and unblanched cheek and heart of flame. He said, God needed not reeds shaken by the wind nor men clothed in soft raiment. He needed heroes of hardihood and lofty courage, and such were the sons of the mighty who responded to the divine call. We don't really know these guys today. You look up there and nearly everybody can find Jefferson and Franklin, but if I were to start on the left side and say, okay, which of those guys is Benjamin Harrison, which is George Clinton, which is uh, Sam Adams, which is Charles Carroll, I'd just go through those we've never heard those guys before. We used to know who all these guys were. Significantly, what we don't know about them today, we know Jefferson and we know Franklin, we say, oh, they were all a bunch of atheist, agnostics, deists. No, no, no. Most of these guys were involved in Christian ministry. 29 of these guys actually graduated from Bible schools and seminaries. So overwhelmingly Christian, a few are not, but overwhelmingly they are Christians. And so these guys do the declaration, and then after we win the war for independence, now it's time to have a constitutional form of government. So we meet in the Constitutional Convention, and in that Constitutional Convention, they came up with the ideas that still bless us today, that have caused us to be the longest ongoing Constitutional Republic in the history of the world, where did they get the ideas that they put in the Declaration of the Constitution? Well, political science professor at the University of Houston asked that question because how did they come up with a government that is so different from everybody else? And so they decided that if we can go back and read the writings of the founding era and see who they quoted, we'll know where they got their ideas. What they did is they published the results of their findings in the Origins of American Constitution. It's a great book to read. And they go back, and what they did was they took 15,000 writings out of the American founding era. They went through those writings. They found 3,154 direct quotes. They then took every quote back to its original source. It took them 10 years. But every quote, and those 15,000 writings they took back to the original source. And at the end of that 10 years, they said, we now know the number one most cited individual in the American founding was Baron Charles Montesquieu. 1750, he wrote a two-volume series talking about separation of powers and, and the three branches of government and how to separate that. He's a Christian philosopher out of France. His book was 1750. The second most cited individual was Judge William Blackstone. He wrote a four-volume set on the, the spirit of laws. Um, that's what American attorneys studied like crazy. Thomas Jefferson said Americans read Blackstone's uh, commentaries on the laws in the same way that Muslims read the Koran. I mean, everybody knew this thing backwards for the third most cited individual was John Locke. He wrote a book called The Two Treatises of Government. Richard Henry Lee, who's the guy in Congress who made the motion that we separate from Great Britain, he said, quote, we copied the declaration out of Locke's two treatises of government. So these are the three most cited individuals, but the single most cited source was the Bible. 
34% of all the quotes in their political writings came out of the Bible. That's four times more often than Montesquieu, four times more often than Blackstone, 12 times more often than Locke. The Bible is far and away uncontested, the single most cited source of their ideas in the American founding. And then after that, we have the Constitution's finished, finished that in September 1787. Now it's time to ratify and it's time for it to become the national document. So what they do is they send it to all the 13 states to get it ratified. They have ratification conventions. And where would you send a government document to be ratified? Well, you send it to state capital. Yeah, we might today. Back then, they sent it to churches to be ratified. The ratification conventions, constitution of those states held in the churches. And then you had to have state elected delegates that were there at the ratification convention because they're the ones that are gonna debate the constitution, see if we should ratify it or not. 44 of the elected delegates were ministers of the gospel. I mean, these were our leaders. These, this is where our ideas came from. We haven't heard this in American history in 70 or 80 years, but this is where our ideas came from, and we used to know the source of these ideas. So after we finished the Constitution's ratified, the next thing we do is we add a Bill of Rights. Does Bill of Rights protect our God-given inalienable rights? There's five rights in the First Amendment. There's two rights in the Second Amendment, one in the Third Amendment. There's a Fourth through the Eighth Amendment, the Due Process Rights. There's about 17, 18 inalienable rights that the government is not allowed to touch. They're God God-given rights that were set aside. So we get the Bill of Rights, and it's significant. There's only two signatures at the bottom of the Bill of Rights. One of them is John Adams, who is president of the Senate. The other is a speaker of the House of Representatives. Is the Reverend Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. He was a pastor out of New York. He wrote the Constitution in New York. And amazingly, if you look in the First Congress, there were so many ministers involved in the First Congress. These are the guys who did the Bill of Rights. The Congress that framed our Bill of Rights had a lot of ministers serving in public office. Absolutely. We didn't think we should compartmentalize politics from religion any more than we compartmentalized morality from education or all the things we compartmentalize today. We didn't back then. We had a holistic view that God should be involved in every aspect of life. So this is why John Adams said, our pulpits have thundered. This is where we got our idea. You want to know where I got my ideas? Our pulpits have thundered. And literally we can show that because we own thousands of sermons back from the founding era. And you look at those sermons and one thing that strikes me is the biblical relevancy. Whatever was going on in the culture, we as Christians could put a Bible verse to it. Today, as Christians, we kind of compartmentalized our faith, and there's the secular and there's the spiritual. Not back then. The Bible applied to every single aspect of life, which is why we as Christians were able to deliver these, these kind of words and sermons. Uh, this is one on the property property tax. Yeah, it's a sermon preached by Reverend George Glover. The Bible is so full of economics. The Bible talks about the estate tax, the inheritance tax. It talks about capital gains taxes. It talks about minimum wage. All these things are covered in the Bible because God talked to his people about an economic system. And by the way, it was a free market economic system. That free market system we have in America that was first implemented in the world in 1627 here in America by Massachusetts, by the Pilgrims of Massachusetts, was based on 1 Timothy 5, 8. It's based on 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, Matthew 25, Luke 19, and Matthew 20. Those are the five verses they used to create the free market system, which is the most prosperous economic system in the history of the world. The Bible also has lots about socialism. All those economic systems are there. This is a sermon on... The liquor law of Massachusetts, it says a good law. What happened? Massachusetts legislature passed a law last week. We looked at it on Sunday and said, here's what they did last week. Looking at it, okay, that's a good law because it matches up with what the Bible says. In the same way, this is the sermons on the slave trade. It was a church that led the way on equality and fighting slavery. Uh, this is a sermon on the future of slave law. The future of slave law is passed in 
1850. This is a sermon in 1851. Fugitive slave law, in my opinion, is the worst federal law ever passed in history. It is terrible. So many provisions. It had so many bad consequences. And it was so bad that we had sermons like this. It said, okay, here's what the fugitive slave law passed. Congress passed this last year. Here's what it says. Here's what the Bible says. People, listen to me. If you obey the fugitive slave law, you're disobeying the Bible. If you're going to obey God, you have to disobey this fugitive slave law. Called for civil disobedience all over the United States because the law was so bad. It's what led to the rise of the Underground Railroad and eventually on into abolition. But it came because of laws like that and sermons like that that put the perspective on what was happening. Because God's word does apply to every aspect of life. So we had sermons on social policy. Uh, here's a sermon on the cry of Sodom and inquired into LGBTQIA+. This is an area that polling right now shows us a 77% of Christians don't like to address this issue at all because they're afraid of being attacked if they say something. Yeah, well, it's always been that way. Just look what happened to Lot. Look what happened to Abraham and back in Genesis 19. Look what happened to the Levite and, and, and Judges 19. This has always been an issue where you get attacked, but we always spoke about it. But today we've kind of gone silent on this issue, and we can't do that as Christians. Everything you can think of was covered in these sermons. It was, it was all covered there. Now, why in the world would we as Christians have dealt with issues like this? It's because of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures are given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God gave us an inspired scripture. In my belief, that's the most important doctrine of the Bible because this tells you that God's word is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. If it's not inspired, inerrant, infallible, you really can't rely on it for the rest of the stuff and you gotta start picking and choosing which parts you're gonna take. But why would God give us an inspired scripture that equips us for everything in life? He tells us, God gave us the scriptures so that anything we face, we can go to the scriptures and get guidance on it. That's why we have the scripture and that's why we help disciple the nation with the kind of the sermons that you saw, the kind of teachings. We as Christians were able to do that. So every is a word that I think is the biggest word in that, in that passage of two verses. It's an inspired scripture, but it deals with every aspect of life. There's nothing that we leave out unless we've been educated in modern America to believe that there's compartmentalization in our faith. Here's the secular, here's the spiritual. God doesn't do that. God applies to everything. He has guidance on everything. So every one of these issues that's popping up right now is something that's been covered in the news in the last 24 months. I chose them specifically because they're current topics. And I also chose them because every one of these issues has Bible verses that deal with it. So as Christians, can we apply Bible verses to issues that are current in the culture going on? We need to, but as it turns out right now, only 6% of Christians can find a Bible verse to go with issues like that. We have to get back to knowing God's word. We have to spend time in it. We have to see how applicable it is. And that's really what made America what it was. Because we haven't done that, over the last 20 years, we've lost 20 points. We're down to 62% of Americans are professing Christians. That's just professing. It doesn't mean they live like it or know God's word, but 60% and that's the lowest it's been in recorded history. We've been done polling for 120 years. We work with pollsters like George Barn and others. It's a 62%. And so when we poll people who no longer go to church, they've just quit going to church, we say, why did you quit? Two out of three said, because the church doesn't lack relevancy. It doesn't help me deal with the stuff I have to deal with during the week. Again, this is where we need to really help people understand. Great Commission, remember Jesus gave Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given unto me. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That is the Great Commission. 
what happened, starting in the 20s and then particularly we changed in the 1960s, we've turned that into an evangelism in it. We've got to get people saved. And we do. We've got to get people saved. But that's not what that Great Commission says. That Great Commission did not say get everybody evangelized. He said, you teach them everything I've taught you. He said, go make disciples. It's about discipleship. It's about helping people learn how to think biblically. You see, that's what he spent three years, three and a half years with the disciples doing, is trying to get them to think biblically. It was a battle for a lot of the time, but that's part of it. And if we were to take that literally, that we teach everything he, he said, go teach them everything I've taught you. Just think back over some of Jesus's teachings. What you have, for example, if you go to Luke 19, he talks about profit makers, rewarding profit makers. This is what we would call the capital gains tax. The, Jesus gave the parable. He said, the more you make, the more income you make, the more we're going to give you so you can make more. And if you don't make anything, we're going to take it away from you and give it to the ones who can make profit. Matthew 20, opposition to the minimum wage and the inviability of, of contracts between employers and employees. It's amazing how many parables Jesus taught that were economic. He said, the kingdom of God is just like this economic situation here. He went to economics to give a lot of the parables. And then if you go to John 8, right of legal confrontation, do you know that in the federal practice procedure, which is the law book you use to practice federal law today in courts, it's volumes long, but in volume 30, there's 20 pages on how the Bible shaped every one of our due process clauses. The right to confront your accuser in the, in the fourth through the eighth amendments, right to confront your accuser comes out of John 8:10. The right to compel witnesses in your behalf is Proverbs 18, 17. The right to speak in your own defense, Acts 22, 1. See, this stuff came out of the Bible. That's what made America the nation it was. So teaching everything is what we as, all, as Christians all need to do. And if you look back at America, we're celebrating America this year, and we're celebrating, here we are, the 4th of July time frame, Independence Day. As you look at what we have, it wouldn't have been here without the church and Christians. And it's not going to stay here without the church and Christians. We as Christians have to commit ourselves to knowing God's word, maybe in a way that's unusual for us. Get back into God's, you know, the pilgrims, when they came here, they said the Bible is brand new to them. It had been put up for a thousand years. They spent from four to six hours a day in the Bible. And they came up with the elective form of government, what we call a Republican form of government. The reason we do elections is the pilgrims. And they pointed at Exodus 18.21, Deuteronomy 1.15.16, Deuteronomy 16.8. They took the Bible and applied it to every aspect of life. So I challenge you to do that. Celebrate America. Let's love what God has blessed us with. Let's ensure that we can pass it down to the next generation with the same biblical view that was given to us. God bless you guys. Congregation, if you would, go on and stand and sing with us. Here's what I told everyone. 
by God's dear grace in an extraordinary place where the stars and stripes and the eagle eyes. Well, there's some big old land with countless trees and happiness is not a Yeah, I've seen enough to know that we got it good. Where the stars and stripes and the eagle fly. Yes, there's a lady that stands in the harbor. But it's the only place that I prefer To love my wife and raise my kids Yeah, well that's the same way that my daddy did Where the stars and stripes And the eagle flies Yes, there's a faithfulness of our God. Oh 
Jesus' name.